0: Hundreds have been arrested in Brazil after supporters of the country's former president stormed government buildings in an attempt to overturn election results. It's Monday, January 9th. This is WBR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Chanoi. Coming up, President Biden makes his first visit to the southern border since taking office. That comes ahead of a summit today in Mexico City. Also this hour, the parents of a man killed by Newton police are suing. They argue the city didn't respond correctly to their son's Mental health crisis.
1: You tell me that these individuals know what they're doing? Absolutely not. And it cost Michael his life, us unbearable pain, and that's why we're suing.
0: And what you need to know about the new federal tax credits for electric vehicles. In sports, the Patriots lose and miss the playoffs. Bruins win. A cloudy morning in the 40s today. It's 7:01 now. The news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Brazil's president says officials will conduct a swift, thorough investigation into rioters who damaged government buildings yesterday in the capital Brasilia. Thousands of rioters who support the country's far-right ex-president attacked the buildings. NPR's Carrie Kahn reports from Brasilia.
3: There was little police resistance to the crowd as they ransacked the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidential offices. The rioters support former President Jair Bolsonaro, an ultra-nationalist. He narrowly lost last October's election to leftist Luis Ignacio Lula de Silva. Bolsonaro has never conceded defeat and falsely claims to have lost due to fraud. The attack took place one week after Lula's inauguration at the same spot. Visibly angry, Lula blamed Bolsonaro for inciting the riot. He also vowed to investigate who financed the rioters and pledged to punish complicit police. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Brasilia.
2: The U.S. House of Representatives will start debating a rules package this evening, setting out the guidelines for how the chamber will operate. The package includes agreements that new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy cut with hardline Republicans who voted against his speakership. But the extent of the deals isn't known, and some moderate Republicans say they need to know more before voting thousands of nurses in New York City are on strike this morning. From member station WNYC, Jack Offenhearts reports this could potentially disrupt health care services at two of the city's largest hospitals.
4: Hospitals have canceled elective surgeries and started transferring patients, including newborns. City officials said they had plans in place to reroute ambulances as well. The union for nurses says they've suffered through chronic understaffing that has worsened since the pandemic, even as hospital administrators take home growing salaries. On Sunday, some small hospitals reached a deal to avert a strike. For NPR News, I'm Jake Oppenharts in New York.
2: California is bracing for more severe storms this week. The National Weather Service has issued cautions for tropical storm-strength winds and torrential rain. Exceptionally heavy snow will fall in higher elevations. From member station KQED, Lakshmi Sarah reports, California officials have provided updates on the damage and deaths from storms so far. Winds
5: have toppled trees across the state and evacuation warnings were in place for about 13,000 residents in Sonoma County where the Russian River is expected to flood its banks in the coming days. Governor Gavin Newsom addressed the state on Sunday.
6: In the last 10 days, 12 people have lost their lives to these floods. 12 people, again, more than have lost their lives, civilians that is, uh, to wildfires in the last two years.
5: A high wind warning has been issued for the Bay Area with gusts up to 60 miles per hour in the valley and 80 miles per hour along the coast. For NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Sarah.
0: You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation are assessing the challenges ahead after the drawn-out election of Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. WBUR's Sharon Brody reports.
7: Newton Congressman Jake Auchincloss says during Kevin McCarthy's struggle to get elected, the concessions that the California Republican made to extreme right wingers in the GOP eviscerate the power of the House Speaker.
4: And instead allow individual House GOP members to gridlock Congress over individual issues. And with 435 cats and dogs in the House of Representatives, it's just a recipe to get nothing done.
7: Auchincloss says the Democrats need to get support from more moderate members of the GOP to accomplish goals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody.
0: Massachusetts gaming regulators are meeting again today to review applications for sports betting apps. The Gaming Commission is slated to vote on the application from Rhode Island-based Bally's. The commission hopes to have online betting rolled out by mid-March. In-person sports betting is scheduled to begin in three weeks. The husband of a missing Cohasset woman is due in court today. The Norfolk D.A. says 46-year-old Brian Walsh misled investigators during the search for his wife, Anna Walsh. The 39-year-old mother of three went missing on New Year's Day. A search for her and evidence related to her disappearance ended Saturday with no results. One of the many in-person annual traditions put on hold by the pandemic is back.
8: Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my person, nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little.
0: That was actor Taylor Schilling k- kicking off the annual Moby Dick readathon For 25 straight hours this weekend at the New Bedford Whaling Museum, 200 people took turns reading out loud from Herman Melville's classic. Museum CEO Amanda McMullen read the final page. It was the devious cruising Rachel that in her retracing search after her missing children only found another orphan. Moby Dick was inspired by Herman Melville's experience on the crew of a whaling ship out of New Bedford. It's 7.06.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, and because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com.
0: The Patriots ended their season with a 35-23 loss to the Bills in Buffalo yesterday. New England's record was 8-9. The Bruins beat the Ducks 7-1 last night in Anaheim. Today the Celtics are back home to play the Chicago Bulls. Cloudy this morning with some showers possible on the south coast and Cape. Right now there are some snow showers still happening across the region. Those should end soon. Clearing by the afternoon. High in the low to mid 40s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s, sunny tomorrow and near 40. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include
10: ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at
11: ecmcfoundation.org.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Layla Falden in Washington. President Biden is in Mexico for a summit of North American leaders. It's the first time a U.S. president has visited the country since former President Barack Obama attended the summit nine years ago.
12: Biden was received in Mexico City last night by President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Now they plan to spend the next couple of days meeting with each other and with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And migration is likely to be a top issue.
11: So we're going to go to NPR's Eder Peralta, who's in Mexico City. Good morning, Eder. Good morning, Leila. Okay, so broadly, what is the objective of this summit? What do these leaders hope to achieve?
4: You know, these uh, meetings are jokingly called a meeting of the three amigos. But I spoke to Julian Ventura, who used to be the deputy foreign secretary under President Andres Manuel López Obrador. And he said, don't let that moniker fool you. Let's listen.
13: It's a massive three-way relationship.
14: North America accounts for one-third of global GDP. It's a trading superpower.
4: And this summit is happening in the shadow of the pandemic, when supply chains from China have been disrupted, and the relationship between China and the West uh, is so strained. So there will be no doubt a lot of talk about nearshoring, which is getting stuff built in these three countries, so there is less dependence on China. And all three countries uh, see this shift as a win. Um, But this is a huge relationship. And these meetings tend to talk about a lot more than the economy. So lots of other things will be discussed
11: okay so now president biden made a border stop in el paso on his way to mexico yesterday Mm -hmm. so is that foreshadowing will migration be the issue that's going to dominate these talks
4: yeah i mean that's a it's a huge issue and it's a prickly issue some officials here in mexico have expressed reservations about some american policies But by and large, the U.S. and Mexico are aligned on immigration. For example, the U.S. has just announced uh, that Cubans, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, and Haitians will be deported back to Mexico if they cross the border to seek asylum. And that policy would not be possible if Mexico didn't agree to receive them. One analyst I spoke to said that Mexico and the U.S. have come to an agreement that what they want to do is deter migrants uh, from ever leaving their countries in the first Mm. place.
11: Now, last week, we also heard about the arrest of one of Mexico's biggest drug lords and the violence that followed that. How much attention will be on security?
4: A lot of attention. Uh, The U.S. is looking to Mexico to fight the drug war more effectively. Essentially, most of the fentanyl that ends up in the U.S. comes through the southern border. And uh, as you mentioned last week, Mexico arrested the son of notorious drug lord El Chapo Guzman, um, who is thought to be a huge fentanyl uh, dealer. And the press here called his arrest a gift to President Biden on this side of the border. uh, Mexico is complaining about the number of guns that keep flowing from the US to here. Uh, The Mexican government blames the US for the violence here, and they have expressed frustration that the American government is not doing enough to stem the flow of weapons.
11: Now, leaders will only be meeting for a pretty short time. Are there Mm -hmm. issues you're watching that might fall by the wayside?
4: I think Haiti. um, It's essentially a failed state. Months ago, the de facto prime minister asked for help. And all of these three countries, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, have played key roles in the past. And they could actually mount an international response to help. But I think it's an open question whether Haiti will even come up in these talks.
11: Wow. Eder Peralta reporting from Mexico City. Thank you so
4: much. Thank you, Leila.
12: President Biden's new border enforcement plan is receiving criticism from all sides. Republicans view it as too little, too late. Some Democrats think it doesn't address the humanitarian situation on the border. So let's ask an immigrant advocate who is actually there. Fernando Garcia is executive director of the Border Network for Human Rights. He joins us now from El Paso, Texas. Fernando, welcome to the show. What did you make of the president's visit there yesterday?
15: Uh, hi, good morning. Uh, well, I believe there there is a sense of uh, some disappointment because of, uh, I mean, because of the the, the visit was just lasted uh, less than three hours, maybe, and I don't believe that the president got to know the extent of the humanitarian crisis here in El Paso. We had um, a lot of families in the streets right now, on the freezing condition. Many of them refugees asking for asylum, and they are being left in the limbo because of the new policy.
12: Now, your organization works with people on the ground. Uh, We heard that the president didn't run into any migrants yesterday on his visit. How will uh, this change and plan affect your organization specifically?
15: Well, I mean, we are being in the ground for the last, I mean, for many years, but in the last few weeks we've been helping Uh, these refugee families that actually don't have anything uh, in downtown El Paso Mm. and didn't be exposed to uh, immigration rates. So we have been able to provide some kind of uh, relief. But I think at the end of the day, I think uh, we are very concerned that most of those families will be expelled uh, under the new guidelines and the new policy of the president. And I think that is a a horrible idea. I mean, we're having families that are literally looking for protection and, and and they don't have a solution right now.
12: And more and more families seem to be coming. How is El Paso dealing with this crisis?
15: Well, you know, El Paso is a very welcoming city. I mean, everybody's putting some effort together. I mean, NGOs, uh, churches, local governments. Uh, but I do believe that this is not sustainable. I mean, this is this needs a long term solution. I mean, we had explained it in the past. We need uh, welcoming centers uh in the long run where in any crisis uh, the federal government will be able to actually run these welcoming centers and provide shelter legal support and other services to these migrants because as much as we can do in el paso is not enough yeah the
12: surges at the border are not new uh fernando the uh, of course the biden administration says these new policies though will help relieve pressure on the overstretched immigration system They also say it'll make the process of coming to the U.S. safe and humane. What do you think about these policies and how they'll play out starting
15: now? Listen, I've been doing this for 25 years. I don't believe that these new guidelines and these these new policies at the border are going to make any difference. I mean, it doesn't resolve the root causes of migration. It it doesn't resolve the asylum uh, broken system. I mean, we cannot think that just one online application is going to resolve the need for people coming to looking for protections. But I think what is very sad is that the president once criticized Title 42, which is uh, a health provision used by the Trump administration as an enforcement, anti-immigrant agenda. And now uh, he's expanding it to these other communities. So what we're going to see in uh, in, in the short run is, thousands uh, of uh, Haitians, Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans being expelled massively to Mexico. So, Mr. Garcia, if you had a chance to
12: make a change and could get the administration to go along with it, what would that be?
15: Three things. The first one would be to, to provide some kind of way uh, some kind of parole for the, those refugees migrants that are already in the United States those ones that are in the streets right now uh, under freezing conditions they need a human approach a humanitarian solution secondly I think the president should have a more uh, heavily investment on welcoming centers along the border and and finally I think there's a there's a there's this, this idea that we need to accomplish, immigration reform. And I think even though it's it's going to be complicated to do the uh, congressional composition right now, I think it's, it's urgent to start serious conversations about it.
12: Thank you so much. Fernando Garcia is Executive Director of the Border Network for Human Rights. He spoke with us from El Paso. Thank you. Thank you.
11: January can be a big month for layoffs.
12: Amazon plans to cut about 18,000 corporate jobs, and the software giant Salesforce says it's laying off about 8,000 employees. That's about 10% of its workforce.
11: Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist for The Washington
16: Post. You know, you never know when layoffs are going to hit. And so you want to be very into what's happening in your industry. She's got
11: advice on what you can do if you think job losses are coming.
16: The first thing you want to do is go back to your budget and start cutting now. The benefit is if you don't get laid off, you're in a great position. And if you do, you've already started those cuts.
12: Singletary says you should also look for ways to reduce loan payments.
16: During really tough times, lenders will give you a break. But you must. You must be in communication with them. So the moment you know you're in trouble... Call, call your credit card company, call the auto lender, call your mortgager, call the rental office.
12: You can also get money by filing for unemployment.
16: All the public service social safety nets you should apply for. And
11: do it as soon as you can because it can take weeks for those benefits to kick in.
12: Financial planner Tammy Lally advises those who get a layoff notice to take care of any medical needs before their last day on the job.
17: Take advantage of your health insurance meaning you know like if you haven't had an annual physical get one
12: and when it comes to finding
11: another job
17: start with your resume and linkedin that's like job search 101
18: but beyond that network network network
11: sarah roadhorse is the co-founder of onwards hr which helps companies carry out layoffs she says you should let people know you're back on the market
18: one of the fastest way to find your next
11: job is to post that you just were laid off by a
18: really well-known company, tech company, and your skills are sought after. We've talked to recruiters, and they are specifically searching on LinkedIn for people who are doing those posts, and especially how they handle and present themselves.
12: Losing a job can be tough, but Roadhorse says it probably won't last for long.
18: It may feel like the sky is falling, but it is temporary. And according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, actually 66% of workers find new employment in fewer than 15 weeks.
12: Hopeful words for those at risk of a layoff. this is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Idaho lawmakers are considering a bill that would ban public drag shows. It's 719.
2: I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to
0: WBUR.org.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MetroWest Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at
19: Bassberry.com. After a series of botched executions, the state of Alabama is moving toward a fix. It could soon begin executing death row inmates using nitrogen hypoxia, or death by lethal gas. And it's not alone. Oklahoma, Mississippi, Missouri, California, Wyoming, and Arizona all have legalized execution by gas. We'll take a look at why. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: There are a few lingering snow showers across the region as a system moves out of the area. Then cloudy skies should clear throughout the day today and temperatures will rise to a high near 44. Tonight those fall to a low around 29 and skies stay clear. Tomorrow mostly sunny with a high near 40. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston. Today on Radio Boston, living on minimum wage. The pay rate is now $15 an hour in Massachusetts. That's one of the highest in the country. But some question whether it's enough to live on here. A closer look today at 11 and 3 on Radio Boston. It's 721.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents.
11: And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin.
12: And I'm Dwayne Brown. Classes are canceled this week at an elementary school in Newport News, Virginia. That's where police say a first grader shot a teacher. As Michelle Hankerson a member station WHRO tells us, it's not clear how authorities will respond to the unique legal and ethical questions presented by the shooting at Rich Neck Elementary.
5: On Friday after the shooting, school superintendent George Parker was simply frustrated.
12: I'm sounding like a broken record today because I I continue to reiterate that, that we need to keep the guns out of the hands of our young people.
5: Newport News police haven't said much other than a first grader fired a gun at the teacher and it was not accidental. The teacher was critically injured but is improving. In Virginia, children younger than 14 aren't likely to go through the normal criminal justice system. Kids who commit violent crimes may not understand their actions have repercussions, or in the case of shootings, that there could be permanent consequences. Authorities have so far declined to comment on potential charges. Mike Mullen is a Newport News lawyer who spent most of his career working on cases involving children. He also represents the city in the state legislature. He expects prosecutors will file a special legal petition that allows the state to take custody of the child.
20: And perhaps you would go and remove them from the home and move them towards wraparound services and make sure that there's mental health services, make sure that they're in the type of foster care system that they need to be in.
5: It's unclear how or where the Richneck Elementary student got the gun, but Virginia law says adults who leave firearms loaded, unsecured and accessible to young children can be charged with a misdemeanor and sentenced up to a year in jail. Mullen, a Democrat, says that's not the kind of punishment expected when a violent crime, like a shooting, occurs. He hopes it's an issue his fellow lawmakers will take up when the legislature begins its annual session on Wednesday. For now, Richnick Elementary students are expected to return to school on Tuesday, where they will be greeted with added counselors and extra security measures. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Hankerson in Norfolk, Virginia.
11: While Democrats nationally fended off huge Republican gains, it's a very different story in some state houses. Idaho, for instance, moved even more to the right. Lawmakers convening there today will consider a bill backed by conservatives that would ban
21: public drag shows. NPR's Kirk Sigler is in Boise. A short walk from the Idaho state House in one of the nation's most far-right controlled states, there's a large popular queer nightclub. The balcony in the heart of Boise's downtown entertainment district is, if nothing else, a symbolic sign in a corner of the country not long ago labeled the hate state. And it is funny because everyone has their idea of Idaho, and it it, it
20: is that way to a point.
21: The club's event director, Dugan Jackman, says Idaho, mostly its liberal-leaning and fast-growing capital city, has come a long way on LGBT rights.
20: When I first moved here, I was scared to walk down the street with my husband holding his hand. And now I, I don't really give a,
21: I I don't care who sees me hold my husband's hand. I don't see who sees me wear nail polish or who knows that I'm queer. As in recent years, last summer, Boise's Pride Festival drew thousands of people with hometown companies like Albertsons, Simplot, and Boise Cascade as major corporate sponsors. But this is a divided America, and in Idaho, there was backlash. A short drive into the suburbs is the Idaho Family Policy Center run by Blaine Kanzadi from inside a small evangelical church. Now, the 31 year old was aghast to learn that recent pride schedule included a drag and lip sync show with kids supervised by parents.
12: You know, this was a huge wake up call, I think, to, to many families throughout the state that in our public parks, this type of, you know, deviant sexual behavior is being peddled to our kids. And through that, our kids are being
21: sexualized. In Boise, the state GOP pressured businesses to pull out of Pride. Most didn't, but the kids' event was still canceled. Now, Konzati wants the legislature to ban all public drag shows. And with conservative Republicans holding a supermajority here, there's a chance they will.
12: When you realize that drag is inherently sexual to begin with, you have a
13: biological male who's impersonating the sexual characteristics of a woman, doing provocative dancing,
22: you know, simulating masturbation and grabbing their genitals.
21: 30-year-old drag performer Frida Knight says Kanzadi doesn't know what he's talking about.
22: It, it's it's ignorance.
21: Knight's is a stage name, we're not using a real name because she's concerned about repercussions.
14: People just coming in, you know, a... Uh, uh just attacking us and not really knowing what we're doing.
21: She's a former Boise State University cheerleader who grew up in Idaho when being gay mostly meant staying underground. She says drag is about art and hope, and performances in a public park or a family-friendly event in a library are intended to show kids from small towns especially that it's okay to be different. 21 and Up shows are geared to adults.
14: You know, that they're like, okay, let's let's hit them here. This might be, you know, a way to try to sort of eliminate them. And it's just awful.
21: If Idaho's bill passes, shows that the Balcony Club will go on. It's a private business. But people here are worried they could be the next target.
12: How are we doing, balcony club?
21: <laughs> One recent Sunday night, a large crowd cheered and partied at the weekly competition Boise's Next Drag Superstar. Frida Knight sat off to one side with her drink beaming.
3: Drag performance is just so powerful. And that's
15: probably why they fear it,
21: you know? And conservatives are open about a bigger agenda. Some want to ban shows outright in the near future. At least five other states from Florida to Arizona are considering anti-drag bills. One was introduced in Montana just days after a gunman opened fire in a Colorado Springs queer bar. But Blaine Canzadeh's steadfast Idaho's proposal is not an attack on LGBT rights.
12: Ensuring that we protect children from sexualization and sexualizing
23: influences is not the same thing as attacking any group or ginning up violence against any group.
21: Still, things are especially tense in Idaho, where last June, 31 men from the far-right Patriot Front were arrested and accused of planning to riot at a North Idaho Pride event and the queer activist community here is itself promising a very organized and public fight at the Statehouse. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Boise.
11: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBR. I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, China has discarded one of the last remnants of its zero COVID policy, a mandatory quarantine for inbound travelers, marking a global shift. And we break down what exactly is entailed in the new tax credits for electric vehicles that kicked in with the new year. It's 729. And a quick reminder, as you head out the door, whether you're headed to work, the gym, or to drop off the kids, you can keep listening to WBR on The WBUR mobile app.
2: Aubrey Gordon's new book debunks myths about weight and body size, like the idea that being fat is a choice. Researchers have been clear for years that our body size isn't solely or even primarily the result of our own choices. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Her book, You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
18: Today at 4 on WBUR.
13: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Lawmakers in the House are expected to get to work today now that they've elected a speaker. It took several days of voting before Republican Kevin McCarthy eventually won the speaker's gavel. He was approved in a 15th round of voting. NPR's Deirdre Walsh says McCarthy agreed to a number of concessions with a group of conservatives who'd been opposing his nomination.
8: McCarthy agreed to a slew of rules changes. Some of them are widely supported by House Republicans, things like votes on the floor on amendments, giving 72 hours to read bills before votes. We should also note this rules package would gut the Office of Congressional Ethics at a time when New York GOP Congressman George Santos admitted he fabricated much of his record and is facing federal investigation for potential campaign finance
13: issues. Thousands of nurses are on strike at two of New York City's largest hospitals. Nancy Hagans is president of the New York State Nurses Association. She says pay is an issue for the nurses, but she says it's not the most important
16: one. Our sticking point is safe patient care, safe nurse-to-patient ratio, safe staffing. This is our number one priority.
13: About half the nurses who walked off the job this morning are from Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shunoy. Doctors and hospitals in Massachusetts are keeping a close watch on COVID numbers this week. The combination of holiday gatherings and the contagious new subvariant has already contributed to a doubling of COVID hospitalizations over the past month. But as WBUR's Priyanka Dale McClaskey reports, this third winter of the pandemic looks different than
24: the last one. About one-third of COVID patients in hospitals are being treated for COVID. The rest were admitted for a different reason. This winter spike remains below the levels of last January when the Omicron variant soared. But it's hitting a short-staffed healthcare system that was already struggling to meet patient demand. Dr. Shira Daron is an epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center.
25: We are certainly not overwhelmed by respiratory virus, but we're seeing those patients on top of a system that is already stressed.
24: One bright spot is that flu is declining from its peak last month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal mccluskey Some colleges in Boston are
0: taking extra steps to protect their campuses against COVID-19. UMass Boston is reinstating its mask requirement. People will need to wear masks inside all campus buildings, regardless of their vaccination status. Tufts is not requiring masks, but is strongly recommending that students get their booster and flu shots. Massachusetts is getting money to boost the amount of healthy local food going to school meal programs. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is giving the state over $3 million. The money will be used to partner with local food businesses to bring minimally processed food to school breakfasts and lunches. It's 733.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org.
0: The New England Patriots' season is over. It ended yesterday with a 35-23 loss to the division champion Bills in Buffalo. The Pats finished the season with an 8-9 record. The Bruins topped the Ducks 7-1 last night in Anaheim. The Celtics are back home tonight to play the Chicago Bulls. We have overcast skies this morning. Those should gradually clear throughout the day. Temperatures will rise to the mid-40s. Tonight they fall to a low around 30. Then tomorrow, mostly clear skies with high temperatures right around 40. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston at 734.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from UMA. A cloud based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At slash
11: NPR. It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadil in Washington, D.C.
12: And I'm Dwayne Brown. Classes are canceled this week at an elementary school in Newport News, Virginia. That's where police say a first grader shot a teacher. As Michelle Hankerson of member station WHRO tells us... No. Okay. Sorry. I can't get out of that. Forced quarantine has been a centerpiece of China's response to COVID-19 for almost three years now, but no longer. As of yesterday, it got a lot easier to get into China. We've got NPR China affairs correspondent John Ruich on the line. John, how significant is this new policy, say, for the day-to-day life in China?
22: Yeah, well, about a month ago, China started dismantling its zero COVID policy, and this is really a big step. It marks the end of what started in 2020 when the government effectively closed its borders and started quarantining inbound passengers. Those quarantines varied from five days to as many as three weeks, and and now things are just shifting back to normal. I chatted with Shur Dendas, who's a journalist with NOS, the Dutch Public Broadcaster. He had just crossed the border from Hong Kong into China. Tens of thousands of people did so yesterday. Uh, it was a piece of cake, he said. Before, let me tell you, crossing this border literally took hours. You had PCR tests and paperwork and waiting and then more waiting and then a bus to a mystery quarantine hotel. But he said he was out in about 15 or 20 minutes on the other side, just like the pre-pandemic normal for the first time in three years.
26: I am waiting for a Didi and Uber to get to the hotel. I actually have to say I'm a little disoriented. I'm used to Like being picked up, sent to a quarantine hotel and make plans for the next couple of weeks or months.
22: Yeah, it's really hard to
12: overstate how big a change this is. So John, does that mean anybody can just go to China now? The rules have changed that much?
22: Well, the authorities are taking it step by step. They don't appear to have resumed issuing new tourist visas right away. Uh, They say they're facilitating visas for students, for businessmen and women, people going into China to visit relatives. Also, flights, they were trimmed way back during the pandemic, and capacity was cut on flights. China says those capacity limits are removed and that there will be a phased-in increase of flights, so that'll take some time. At that Hong Kong-China border crossing, Thousands crossed, but there are still limits on the numbers. That's going to be changing in the coming weeks and days. And we're talking about the the people getting into China. A lot of the border flow that China sees is people leaving the country. Chinese tourists have become a huge force in recent years. For most of the pandemic, China stopped issuing passports to Chinese citizens for tourism. That's changing now. And there's pent up demand when the policy change was announced a little over a week ago. The Chinese travel site Trip.com said it saw a huge boom in online searches for travel to places like South Korea, Thailand, places popular with Chinese tourists. But it'll take time.
12: And lifting the COVID travel restrictions, what about the economic implications? We know factory workers were sorely affected, right?
22: Yeah, this is not going to be a panacea for the economy, which faces lots of big issues, but border closures have been a big drag and they've been a problem for people like Dakota Adams. He's got a startup in Santa Cruz, California, that designs and makes portable blenders for protein shakes and making margaritas on the go. He says it's been exceedingly tough to build out and manage his production line in China with the border so hard to cross.
23: Zoom is okay for teleconferencing if you're, you know, an office worker, but building real physical products, it doesn't really work if you're not able to go over there.
22: He's been to China once since 2020. Normally, he's going once a month. Uh, They're finally shipping products this month. He says they're about a year behind schedule, but he's hopeful that things are going to get back on track.
23: We're very excited about the reopening. So we're immediately rebooking tickets to get over there as soon as we can.
22: The problem for him at the moment, though, is that he says basically everyone he knows in China has COVID.
23: Wow.
12: NPR's John Riewicz, thank you. You're welcome. Unionized, union organized nurses at two of New York City's biggest hospitals say they are going ahead with a strike this morning. Nurses at Mount Sinai Hospital's main campus in Harlem got up early to get ready to picket. In fact, that's where we find Caroline Lewis of member station WNYC in New York. Caroline, good morning. Get Good us morning. Up, yeah, get, to, get us up to speed. Why have the nurses decided to strike?
16: Well, nurses are, you know, they're fighting for better pay and health benefits, but I think the main issue here is staffing. Um, you know, there are hundreds of unfilled nursing positions at both hospitals that are striking today. And staffing has really been an issue that has been exacerbated by the pandemic, with a lot of people leaving to become travel or, you know, temp nurses. And hospitals struggling to, to keep up with uh, pay that can compete with with uh, how lucrative those positions are
12: so staffing and pay those are just two of the issues um patient care as you pointed out what do the hospitals say about the impact as it relates to patient care
16: uh well you know in new york city they're diverting uh ambulances away from these hospitals today uh The hospitals, you know, I know are definitely going to be shelling out a lot of money for temporary staff uh, to to fill in while the strike is ongoing, but the patient care has still been affected, um, you know, with elective surgeries postponed. And um, I know both hospitals were trying to uh, either discharge or transfer as many patients as they could safely over the weekend.
12: And Caroline, remind us what happened with contract negotiations. Where did they break down?
16: Um, Well, I think, you know, specifically the staffing issue, again, has really been the issue. Um, You know, both hospitals are offering raises that are similar to what has been offered at other hospitals where strikes have been avoided in recent days. Um, But, you know, nurses say that they really want commitments from these hospitals to uh, fill the open positions and to put in place enforcement mechanisms, you know, if they're failing to uh, staff up properly. You know, nurses are saying that, They are just taking on, you know, more patients than they safely can um, in these different units. Um, And I think, you know, the mood here is really exuberant, but a lot of nurses say they're really sad that it's come to this.
12: And I guess the final question is, what are the unions asking to happen now?
16: Uh, Well, you know, the governor Hochul last night really tried to avoid... Uh, a a strike at the last minute saying that you know she she basically said that the hospitals and nurses should enter into arbitration uh, to avoid a strike Uh, and the hospital said they were open to that but the nurses said you know they want these hospitals to meet their demands um, and and they're you know going to move forward with the strike until that happens.
12: And how long do we expect this to go on?
16: Uh, that's unclear, you know. I mean, other hospitals, again, like have been able to reach deals, you know, in recent days. So I think that's promising. Um, but there are other hospitals that still might strike after this. You know, there's a, another hospital in in Brooklyn that has issued a strike notice uh, for the coming days if they don't reach a deal. Um, and so I think they're willing to stay out here Thanks, until Caroline. they have their demands met.
12: We'll leave it there, Caroline Lewis, of member station WNYC in New York. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, WBOR's Deborah Becker talks to the family of a man fatally shot by Newton police. They filed suit arguing officers didn't respond correctly to his mental health crisis. And in our next hour, Harvey Weinstein will be sentenced today in California for rape and sexual assault. In your forecast, skies should clear throughout the day today, and we'll have temperatures in the mid-40s. Tonight, low 30s. Skies stay mostly clear tomorrow. It'll be in the upper 30s and low 40s. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston at 743.
7: WBUR supporters include Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter.
0: To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Now, in business news, most Massachusetts business leaders remain confident in the state's economy. But their concerns are shifting in the new year. WBWAR's Dan Guzman has more on the new Business Confidence Index from the Associated Industries of Massachusetts.
20: The Confidence Index dropped about three points from last December compared to the year before, down to a 54 out of 100. Chris Guerin, the group's executive vice president, says overall, that's still a good score.
26: While confidence may have waned a bit at the end of 22, uh, Massachusetts employers are still overall... Uh, optimistic about their prospects in 2023.
20: He adds that last year, employers' biggest concerns were supply chain issues and inflation, but that's not the case this year.
26: The primary concern appears less about inflation and more about economic growth or economic slowdown.
20: Garen believes the first quarter will be key on whether those concerns are eased or not. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman.
0: It's 744.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL
9: Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products. Located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com
0: This is War's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoy. The family of a man shot and killed by Newton police two years ago has filed a civil lawsuit over his death. Although an inquest cleared officers of criminal responsibility, the man's family members say they've filed suit to try to improve the way police respond to mental health emergencies. WBR's Deborah Becker reports.
10: Huddling under an umbrella, Bob and Betsy Conlin visit their son Michael's grave. It's less than a mile from their Medfield home, decorated by heart-shaped rocks.
27: Whenever I go on a walk... And this is how I feel Mike gives me signs. And I'll look down and there will be a heart-shaped rock.
10: Until now, the Conlins haven't spoken publicly about their son's death. Bob Conlin says he dropped off Michael, who was 28, at his Newton apartment after the holidays. A short time later, Medfield police told him his son had been fatally shot by Newton police.
1: In the morning, he helped us take down the tree. Uh, There was nothing unusual whatsoever. He was in very good spirits. And then, um, you know, 24 hours later, he's dead. Uh, It's absolutely stunning.
10: Conlin says police were aware of Michael's history of mental illness, including schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. He says Michael was afraid of police and sometimes questioned whether reality was a simulation. According to an inquest into the shooting, a Newton business owner had called police that day two years ago because Michael appeared disoriented and was carrying a kitchen knife. When police responded, Michael ran into his nearby apartment building. A social worker was with police, but stayed outside because of safety concerns. The inquest, Bob Conlin says, showed the scene was chaotic.
1: There's tons of officers in that building. The, the communication is horrible, but you, nobody knows who's in control.
10: State police troopers had also responded. Several officers were crowded into a third-floor hallway talking with Michael and waiting for trained negotiators to arrive. Officers were not wearing body cameras, but records show that Michael was asking to talk with his father and he was threatening to harm himself. Betsy Conlin says eventually police convinced Michael to drop the knife.
26: Michael was complying. He put the knife down. He was listening and it was working.
2: From the beginning, this should never have happened.
10: Once the knife was on the ground, police tried to get it away from Michael by shooting a so-called non-lethal weapon, a beanbag gun, but it misfired. So Michael picked up the knife and went toward officers.
1: Yes, Michael charged because he thought if you ever seen a non-lethal, what they use looks like a real gun. He's having a mental breakdown. And so when he sees somebody aim it at him, he thinks they're gonna shoot him.
10: Officers then fired at least seven times. They use them for target practice.
1: You tell me that these individuals know what they're doing? Absolutely not. And it cost Michael his life us unbearable pain, and that's why we're suing.
10: The lawsuit says the shooting could have been avoided if police had followed best practices and waited for the trained negotiators. The suit alleges that police and the city of Newton violated the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act. It requires accommodations for those considered disabled because of their mental illness. The suit says Newton had a flawed emergency system that endangered people with mental illness.
1: Our our beautiful son that we kept alive for 28 years trying to do everything that we could in terms of doctors and support and whatever he needed, shot and killed in 27 minutes.
10: A statement from Newton's mayor and police chief in response to the suit calls the shooting tragic. The statement points out that the inquest found there was, quote, no reasonable alternative to the use of force by police. Law enforcement officials say there have been recent improvements in responding to behavioral health calls. Lawrence Police Chief Roy Vask, president of the Massachusetts Major City Chiefs of Police Association, says about a quarter of police shootings involve a mental health issue. Vask acknowledges more could be done but he says there's increased training and more departments have mental health professionals on staff
6: everybody understands in policing that this is an issue and that we need to address it before you know we have some sort of incidents that that are not going to be uh, have great outcomes
10: according to a washington post database police have fatally shot 54 people in massachusetts since 2015 including michael conlin for 90.9 wbur I'm Deborah Becker.
0: story there from Deb Becker. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana.
28: Good morning, Rupa. I agree. Really powerful reporting from Deb there. Great follow-up on that story. Um, We are going to look at the difference between minimum wage and living wage. Mm. So we have this interesting situation in Massachusetts. We're up to $15 an hour. Yep. You talked, You promoted this earlier in the show today. And that kind of puts Massachusetts ahead of the curve. There are a number of states who have done this, but it's at the high end, especially compared to federal minimum wage, which is about half. But it's not arguably enough to live on, nevertheless. So what do you do when you're ahead of the curve? And yet, not providing people a living wage uh, in a high cost of living state like Massachusetts. That's a great question. What else? So we're also going to look at diversity in the state house. We mm-hmm. have a state representative and a state senator. What is representation? Uh, do we have population representation? And what's lost when we don't what we can do about it? So some
0: great conversations on policy today. I'm so glad you're checking in on that. That's Radio Boston today at 11. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, that It's 751.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D A T A I K U dot com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide. At easycater.com.
12: A lot of people may be thinking about buying an electric car this year. There are lots of new models, and last year's massive climate bill included some big changes to the tax credits for buying EVs, but it's a bit complicated, well, really, really complicated. NPR's Camila Domenoski joins us. Uh, the massive climate bill last year, uh, Camila, included some big changes, as I mentioned, in the tax credit. What are some of the biggest changes that you can tell us about that went into effect last week?
29: Yeah, so for this $7,500 tax credit, one headline item is Tesla Model 3s and Chevy Bolts are eligible again. Those are best Mm -hmm. sellers that had used up their cap under the previous version of the tax credit. Now you can get a credit for them again. Um, At the same time, a bunch of other vehicles that used to be eligible aren't eligible anymore, but largely because there's a new price cap that went into effect, but also some other restrictions. And then I also want to flag used vehicles are now eligible for the first time for a smaller tax credit. That is, of course, if you can find a used electric vehicle right now.
12: Yeah. So some new EV restrictions in place. How do I figure it out? How do I figure out if I qualify?
29: yeah so for a new vehicle strap in Dwayne, buckle up this is going to be a journey step one is you go to the irs website and you see if the vehicle that you want is even potentially eligible and then you have to look to see what the price cap is because there is a different price cap for different vehicles and then you have to check the sticker price of the vehicle you want to see if the price is actually under the price cap Mm -hmm. then Get the VIN and confirm that the specific <laughs> car you want was built in the United States. Oh my God! Because gosh. that's going to knock out a bunch of vehicles. And then, if you've done all that, you kind of need to approximate your taxes for next year for 2022, 2023 <laughs> that you're going to file in 2024, and make sure that your adjusted gross income is under 150 grand because there's an income cap now. And make sure your tax bill itself, what you owe, is at least seven thousand five hundred dollars, or else you oh can't my take advantage gosh. of this. If you've done all that, you are eligible for a tax credit, provided you buy the vehicle in about the next seven weeks.
12: I don't even know if I want one now. So, so <laughs> what do you mean the the next seven weeks?
29: In March, everything's going to change again. There are more requirements, really strict ones, that are going to go into effect. They aren't in effect right now because the IRS couldn't figure them out. Um, mm. But once they kick in. A bunch of vehicles won't be eligible anymore so i asked keith berry of consumer reports does this mean i should run out and buy a car like immediately and he said this
21: if there's an electric car that you are already interested in and you know that it qualifies and you know that it's available on a dealer lot uh, you should go and buy it but there is no such thing as a good deal in a bad car
29: so yeah don't buy a car just to get the credit but if you're seriously considering one you know don't dawdle <laughs> and it's also worth noting, with this big change in March, what matters is when you drive the vehicle home, not when mm. you pay for it. Anyone right. who tried to buy an EV in the last year can tell you getting your hot little hands on something can be a challenge.
12: Yeah, just the, the waiting time with all mm-hmm. the delays and the chip shortages yep. and all that other fancy stuff. Is there any way to, to make this process simpler to, to purchase an EV?
29: Well, um, if you wait, it might get easier next year. If you lease, a lot fewer rules apply. Um, But yeah, no, inherently it is complicated. Congress is trying to do two things at once with these credits, incentivize EV sales and fight climate change, but also boost domestic manufacturing. That makes this inherently complicated.
12: NPR's Camila Domonowski, thank you.
23: Thank
29: you.
11: High energy prices and inflation are taking a toll on UK businesses, and researchers say smaller retailers are struggling to survive. Villa Marx reports.
23: In Britain, a country long ago described as a nation of shopkeepers, many small store operators today are struggling to survive. Once a minute, darling, thank you. In the town of Broxburn, just west of Scotland's capital city, Edinburgh, Waz Abbas has served his convenience store customers for 23 years.
9: Perfect, thank you so much. Cheers, guys. See you there.
23: But now, rising fuel costs are creating fresh financial pressures. Everything that comes to your door is delivered. So the fuel is going to
15: impact it, irrespective of whether you're getting a block of cheese or a pallet of beer delivered. It is going to affect the cost of it. So it came to a point that
23: businesses like ours couldn't absorb it any longer. His electricity bills have also more than doubled since November, partly a consequence of the conflict in Ukraine. Despite massive government subsidies, he's worried about raising his prices further in response.
15: But how much can you put up a jug of milk? How much can you put up a bag of crisps? How much can you put up a bar of chocolate before you, the end user,
14: thinks, well, actually, I can't afford to now eat that bar of chocolate?
23: If this energy cost crisis continues, Abbas is concerned he'll either need to let staff go or else force his wife and himself to work for free. Other alternatives, he says, are even worse. Too
15: many guys now are looking at actually either we will survive this year or we will close our door and walk away and rather pay the bills. That's where it's got to.
23: Across Britain, many retailers are facing similarly tough choices. The Centre for Retail Research found that more than 11,000 independent stores closed in 2022 alone. Professor Joshua Bamfield published those findings.
9: A lot of retailers have said to themselves, there's no way we can turn the shop into a paying proposition. We're paying to keep it open, so we might just as well close it.
23: He says the UK's current recession and inflation are only partly to blame. The move to online shoppings played a huge role, too, by creating short-term uncertainty. We talk
9: about crisis. The British retail industry is in a stage of transition. I think that within a couple of years, it should be clearer what the right answer is in every area, and retail will be in a rather better position.
23: In the meantime, government support is seeking to stabilise the situation for shop owners, with lower tax rates and support for utility bills, at least through this winter, But long-term trends in the changing behaviour of British shoppers could create new opportunities too, says Javier Dillon, an economist at industry trade group the British Retail Consortium. Commerce isn't just opening up a store now and having a warehouse to store your goods and your various different products. It's fairly possible in today's economy for somebody to to start up a business and start promoting it on Instagram and get a micro-retail business off the ground that way. Waz Abbas says he's adapting to digital retailing as best he can. But by the time his kids are his age, he fears Britain's centuries-old tradition of shopkeeping may have become a thing of the past. For NPR News, I'm Bilal Marks in London.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil.
23: And I'm Dwayne Brown.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at Bassberry.com. I'm On Point
26: executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Brazil's president is condemning supporters of his predecessor who stormed the country's Congress yesterday, smashing windows, setting fires, and beating police officers. It's Monday, January 9th. This is WBR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, the U.S. Congress gets to work today. Now that the House finally has a speaker, Republicans are expected to prioritize cuts to IRS funding. Also this hour, there's been a surge of interest in CPR since Buffalo Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin, collapsed at a game last week.
14: This is a wake-up call and shows you how critical it is that people learn CPR, intervention, even by a bystander, could save a life.
0: And WBR's senior health reporter explains why local doctors are hopeful despite increasing COVID cases and hospitalizations. Even among patients with COVID,
25: they're less sick than patients were overall in the earlier days of the pandemic.
0: Clearing today in the 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is in Mexico City for this week's North American Leaders Summit. NPR's Tamara Keith reports on what is expected to be discussed.
8: The agenda includes climate policy, trade, and immigration. There are simmering disagreements over energy policy and GMOs in agriculture. But Martha Barcena Coqui, a former Mexican ambassador to the U.S., says there is a shared interest in what's known as nearshoring, bringing manufacturing of microchips, for instance, from China to North America.
18: The main result is that the summit itself is taking place and that we come back to the concept of North America so that the three leaders of North America get together and try to
8: see a common future and a common vision. Tonight the three leaders and their spouses will share dinner together. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Mexico City.
2: President Biden has used social media to condemn yesterday's attacks on government buildings in Brazil's capital, Brasilia. The rioters support far-right ex-president Jair Bolsonaro. NPR's Marie Andrusovich says the rioters falsely claim the election was stolen from him last year.
19: Biden called the ransacking of the Brazilian government buildings an assault on democracy and on the peaceful transfer of power, adding that Brazil's democratic institutions have the full support of the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan also spoke out against the violence. Some Democrats in Congress compared the riot in Brazil's capital to the January 6th insurrection.
2: NPR's Marie Andrusovich reporting. The U.S. House of Representatives starts debate this evening on a rules package. These govern how the chamber operates. Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to several rules changes to win support for for his speakership from some hardliner Republicans. Some moderate Republicans say they want to see these deals before they vote on the rules package. A major United Nations conference is seeking more than $16 billion to help Pakistan recover from last year's unprecedented flood disaster. Lisa Schlein reports. UN Chief
7: Guterres calls the crisis affecting Pakistan a climate disaster of monumental scale. He says one-third of the country remained submerged underwater more than six months after it was struck by a record-breaking monsoon.
15: A terrifying wall of water killed more than 1,700 people, injured thousands more, and affected a total of more than 33 million, displacing eight million people.
7: Guterres says Pakistan represents less than one percent of global emissions. While it didn't cause the climate crisis, it is one of its biggest victims. He says the international community must help Pakistan rebuild a sustainable future. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva.
0: You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congresswoman Katherine Clark is criticizing part of a deal that made Republican Kevin McCarthy House Speaker on the 15th vote. Clark says the deal gives Republicans leverage to cut Social Security and Medicare. Appearing on CNN this weekend, the House minority whip accused the GOP of using a smokescreen by saying they only want reforms to House procedures and they are not intent on targeting the
27: programs. This is their written agenda that they had put forward during the midterms, that they are going to use the debt ceiling as leverage to take American seniors hostage.
0: House Republicans say spending cuts need to be part of any serious attempt to cut the federal deficit. Cambridge city leaders are meeting today to discuss whether the city should ban crisis pregnancy centers. The city council says those centers can look like facilities that offer a full range of reproductive care, but counsel against services like abortion. Cambridge would follow the move of other cities in the state. The Somerville City Council banned crisis pregnancy centers last year. The husband of a missing Cohasset woman is due in court today. 46-year-old Brian Walsh was arrested yesterday on charges he misled investigators during the search for his wife, Anna Walsh. She was last seen at her Cohasset home on New Year's Day. Police ended the search for the 39-year-old mother on Saturday with no results. The historic 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury is remembering Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. this week. Reverend Willie Bodrick II is the church's senior pastor. Bodrick says the sanctuary held special meaning for the civil rights icon, as well as his wife, Coretta Scott King.
14: The first time she ever heard him ever preach was at 12th Baptist Church. Uh, And we thank God for their collective advocacy as they continue to do the work of organizing fighting for civil rights in this nation.
0: This Friday will be the dedication of the embrace. That's the new memorial sculpture on the Boston Common dedicated to the Kings. It's 806.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Professional Pastry Arts at BU's Programs in Food and Wine, teaching the classic and advanced techniques behind making the perfect flaky, buttery treats. Study with world-class bakers and learn what it takes to launch a food-related career in just 14 weeks.
0: More at bu.edu slash foodandwine slash pastry. The Patriots are not headed to the playoffs. Their season ended yesterday with a 35-23 loss to the Bills in Buffalo. WBWR's Walter Wuthman reports it was the Bills' first game since safety DeMar Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest
30: on the field. Both teams took a moment to honor Hamlin's recovery before the game. The Bills then exploded out of the gate, scoring on their first play. Here was the call on CBS. This is Patriots coach Bill Belichick said his team played hard but made costly mistakes.
12: Proud of the way our guys competed um, and prepared, uh, but in the end, collectively, players, coaches, I mean, it was wasn't good enough today.
30: The Patriots haven't won a playoff game in the past four seasons. For ninety point nine WBUR, I'm Walter Withman.
0: In other news, sports news, the Bruins routed the Ducks 7-1 last night in Anaheim. The Bees are now off until Thursday. The Celtics are back in action tonight as they host the Chicago Bulls. Cloudy this morning with some showers possible on the south coast and Cape. Clearing by the afternoon, high in the low to mid-40s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow and near 40. Right now it's 35 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters
7: include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and in securities involve the risk of loss.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Leila Faldel in Washington, D.C. Brazil's president, Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, has returned to the capital, Brasilia. He's come back to survey the damage from an attack yesterday on the Brazilian Congress and other government buildings.
12: Thousands of supporters of former president Jair Bolsonaro marched across the capital to the plaza that Houses Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court, and presidential offices. President Lula da Silva called the rioters fascists and said they will be identified and punished.
11: NPR's South America correspondent Carrie Kahn is in Brasilia. Hi, Kerry. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So this sounds very familiar, a lot like what the U.S. experienced on January 6th at the Capitol building two years ago. Mm-hmm. What motivated these supporters of Bolsonaro to storm the Capitol and vandalize government buildings?
3: The, the similarities are, are quite striking. You have Bolsonaro, who's a one-term president from the far right, who lost the election and refused to concede, and he spent months insisting he lost due to fraud, which he's never provided proof of. His supporters have been camping out in front of army barracks ever since the election on October 3rd, and they've been urging the military. They want them to step in and overturn the results. Yesterday, they amassed in great numbers here in Brasilia. Some 40 buses have arrived in the Capitol and they march escorted by police to the government esplanade where you said that where they have the Congress, the Supreme Court and the president's office. Once there, they just trashed those offices. Images of the mayhem are devastating. They smashed windows, they broke furniture, they set fires. They were violence against the few police that did try to hold the line. One video was particularly disturbing. It was showing the crowd turn on this lone police officer on a horse. They just pulled him off the horse and were beat beating him with sticks, and uh-huh. hundreds have been arrested.
11: Wow, it does sound so similar. When President Lula da Silva spoke about this, did he say how he plans to respond?
3: He, he was clearly upset and angry. He called the rioters
31: vandals. The
3: He says they were fascists, fanatics, and what they did has never been done before in the history of this country. He lashed out at the federal police in Brasilia, too, that appeared to do very little to stop the rioters, especially as they marched from this encampment at the army barracks, and they walked about four miles to the government buildings. And he also squarely placed the blame for incitement of the violence on former President Bolsonaro. He said there will be a quick and thorough investigation into who finally... The rioters and also
11: the police in action. What about Bolsonaro? I mean, these are his supporters. Where is he? What is he saying?
3: Last night Bolsonaro tweeted his he condemned the what he called illegal acts and he said that he was not responsible for the rioters' actions. Though he's not in Brazil, he's actually in Florida, okay. in Orlando. He left Brazil just days before Lula's inauguration. He broke a longstanding Brazilian tradition to pass the presidential sash to his successor. He really had remained practically silent after losing the election last October, and many of his followers have just been frustrated by the silence. And And then his leaving the country, the attack was exactly one week since Lula was inaugurated. It was at this exact same site. So that may be why they chose this day, even though the government isn't working on a Sunday.
11: That's NPR's South America correspondent, Kerry Kahn in Brasilia. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Oliver Stunkel is a professor of international relations at the Jutolia Vargas Foundation in Brazil. He joins us now from Sao Paulo. Welcome.
32: Thank you, Leila. Good morning.
11: Good morning. So as we heard from our correspondent, Bolsonaro's supporters have been protesting the election results since officials announced his loss. They've been camped out for months. In your view, was this attack a surprise?
32: Actually, not at all. Uh, In fact, uh, for the past two years since attackers invaded the capital in Washington, analysts have been saying that something similar could happen in uh, Brazil. And at the time, When January 6th happened, Bolsonaro's son actually publicly came out rooting for the invaders and and even said that if they had organized better, they could have achieved most of their aims. Mm. Bolsonaro has also uh, not recognized initially the legitimacy of the Biden administration has uh, shared a lot of views and and ideas of of Donald Trump about, uh, you know, that the election was supposedly rigged. So in a way, there's so many parallels between the two leaders that it was fairly obvious that something like, uh, you know, a a January 6th scenario could happen uh, in Brazil. What is most surprising to me, is that security forces have done almost nothing to stop the invaders because differently from the U.S. scenario where police was genuinely surprised because this had never happened before, there were a lot of people saying, we need to be careful. There's thousands of pro-Bolsonaro supporters asking for a military coup and they're in the capital, they've been in the capital for weeks, they may end up doing the same.
11: So these attacks were directly inspired? By what happened here in DC
32: well I would certainly think so because this has you know never happened in Brazil before uh, and I think that when bolsonaro until recently looked towards the United States I mean sort of the the Trump post-election strategy uh, has been quite successful because you know he's still uh, the leader of the opposition he could still be the presidential candidate next year uh, he still got lots of support uh, in the Republican Party so I think to some extent, uh, Bolsonaro uh, is certainly looking towards a, a similar strategy. I would uh, say it's you know very likely that this is largely inspired by events in Washington two years ago.
11: How else may that relationship between Bolsonaro and Trump affect politics in Brazil?
32: I think looking forward, uh, Brazil will face a similar issue to what we're seeing in the United States, which is that part of the electorate will not recognize the legitimacy of the Lula government. Uh, there's also been an increase in uh, the amount of, of weapons that are actually available uh, in Brazil. Uh, Bolsonaro has been loosening gun laws quite significantly. Uh, so there's a lot of concern about uh, you know armed political violence uh, of the type that we've seen in Brasilia now, that this could uh, occur. Uh, elsewhere in the country. So I think this um, has the potential to erode democracy and deepen polarization.
11: Brazil is the biggest economic power in the region. And if we could just take a, view, a larger view here of the geopolitical significance, you know, what will happen in the bigger picture?
32: Well, just like the United States inspiring, uh, you know, political events around the world, Brazil uh, is the largest uh, country in, in Latin America. And uh, during the pr- uh, past four years, several leaders across the region have emerged that uh, certainly inspire uh, themselves in, in Bolsonaro. So we've uh, now seen sort of a anti-democratic uh, nationalist, uh, right-wing um, candidates emerging in countries like Chile, which uh, until then had been you know, fairly uh, stable and, and, and not polarized. Uh, we've seen anti-establishment uh, figures emerging elsewhere which uh, utilize theme, similar strategies to Bolsonaro. And um, I think that ju- even though he's Bolsonaro is no longer president, he still has the capacity to destabilize politics in Brazil. There's certainly an interest in the international community that uh, Brazil's democracy can go back to normal because unless it finds its equilibrium, again, it, I think, will struggle much more to tackle many of the uh, economic issues. And unless there is domestic stability, uh, I think we can't really count on Brazil being a constructive member, addressing and participating actively and finding solutions to uh, global problems.
11: Oliver Stunkel is a professor of international relations at the Getulio Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo. Thank you so much.
32: Thank you for having me.
12: We want to warn you that this next story deals with rape and sexual assaults. specifically the conviction of those crimes of disgraced film executive Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein is scheduled to appear in a Los Angeles courtroom for sentencing on three counts today. He's already serving a separate 23-year sentence following similar convictions in New York. NPR's Mandalik Del Barco has more.
27: The Los Angeles jury found Harvey Weinstein guilty of raping and sexually assaulting a model and actress identified in court as Jane Doe No. 1. After the verdict, she told news outlets Weinstein forever destroyed her the night he raped her after a film festival in 2013. In a statement, she said, quote, I hope Weinstein never sees the outside of a prison cell during his lifetime. The 70-year-old still has 21 more years to serve in New York prison, though he's appealing that rape conviction. Here in California, he could face an additional 18 years behind bars. He's likely to appeal this, too. During the L.A. trial, the jury heard testimony from dozens of women, and they heard a secret recording of Weinstein trying to lure one woman into a hotel room.
2: Please,
12: I'm not going to do anything. I swear my children. Please come in. I everything. I'm a famous I'm,
27: guy. I'm
19: feeling he, very uncomfortable right he's now. Please come in now.
27: That audio was from a wire worn by Ambra Batilana Gutierrez during a New York City police sting operation. It was part of the evidence presented in court. Prosecutors called Weinstein a monster and predator. But in L.A., as in New York, Weinstein maintained that any relations he had were consensual, what his attorneys called transactional sex, with women wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. It was part of the so-called casting couch culture, they said, calling at least one of his accusers a bimbo. In the end, the LA jury acquitted Weinstein of sexually abusing another Jane Doe, and they couldn't agree over whether he had raped or abused two other women, including Jennifer Siebel Newsom, the wife of California's governor. After the verdict, Newsom's attorney, Beth Fagan, took issue with Weinstein's defense strategy. Attacking the women and calling them bimbos really exacerbated their trauma. Many of the accusers were disappointed Weinstein wasn't convicted on all counts. More than 100 women have come forward with allegations dating back decades. If the New York and California convictions are upheld, Harvey Weinstein, the original villain of the Me Too movement, could spend the rest of his days behind bars. Mandalita Albarco, NPR News, Los Angeles.
12: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupert Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Republicans are expected to prioritize cuts to IRS funding as the House gets to work today now that it finally has a speaker. It's 820.
19: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org.
9: WBUR supporters include Whitehead Institute, Join Director Ruth Lehman on january twenty sixth in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer.
19: WI dot MIT dot edu slash events After a series of botched executions, the state of Alabama is moving toward a fix. It could soon begin executing death row inmates using nitrogen hypoxia, or death by lethal gas. And it's not alone. Oklahoma, Mississippi, Missouri, California, Wyoming, and Arizona all have legalized execution by gas. We'll take a look at why. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Attleboro says voters cannot cast their ballots for the city's first feline mayor, at least for Meow. A gray cat named Spooky attempted to register for the mayor's race on Friday, but election officials turned him down because he isn't registered to vote and he isn't 18 years old, even when you count his nine lives. Spooky's humans say he wanted to run on a platform of controlling Attleboro's rat problem and lowering the price of tuna. In your forecast, cloudy skies should clear throughout the day today and temperatures will rise to a high near 44. Tonight, those fall to a low around 29 and skies stay clear. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 40. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 821.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized program based in psychology to help people understand their motivations, change their habits and lead healthier lives. Learn more at Noom. NOOM.com And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at LifeLock.com slash NPR. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com slash public and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown.
11: And I'm Leila Fahdell. After 15 ballots and four days of drama, Kevin McCarthy secured enough votes to serve as Speaker of the House.
12: The California Republican spoke about his priorities leading the House amid a politically divided government.
9: Our system is built on checks and balances. It's time for us to be a check and provide some balance to the president's policies.
11: NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us to preview what's ahead in Congress. Good morning, Deirdre. Good morning, Leila. So before the House can vote on any bills, it has to approve rules for how the chamber operates, right? Is that a done deal? It could run into some
8: problems tonight. In exchange for getting those votes from the hard-right faction, McCarthy agreed to a slew of rules changes. Some of them are widely supported by House Republicans, things like votes on the floor on amendments, votes on single issue bills, instead of wrapping them into a bunch of things into one massive package, giving 72 hours to read bills before votes. We should also note this rules package would gut the Office of Congressional Ethics, which screens potential rules violations at a time when New York GOP Congressman George Santos admitted he fabricated much of his record and is facing federal investigation for potential campaign finance issues. These rules also allow just one lawmaker to offer a resolution to oust the speaker. So there's going to be this constant threat hanging over McCarthy's speakership. Are moderate Republicans going along with these changes? Not all of them. Texas Republican Tony Gonzalez yesterday said he's a no because he has concerns about the impact the vows to balance the budget within 10 years and slash discretionary spending are gonna have on the Pentagon. South Carolina Republican Nancy Mace, a moderate, supports rules changes, but said on CBS yesterday she's on the fence for voting for them because she wants details about the other deals that were cut in exchange for votes. we don't know what they got or didn't get. We haven't seen it. We don't have any idea what promises were made or what gentlemen's handshakes were made. We just we just have no idea at this point. And it does give me quite a bit of heartburn because that's not what we ran on. We should know McCarthy just has a four seat majority, so he can't afford more than a few defections. So what's the first thing House Republicans are planning to do if they can get past this step? The first bill the House of Representatives is going to vote on will be to roll back the increase to the Internal Revenue Service that was part of the Inflation Reduction Act passed by Democrats over the summer. This was a top Republican campaign promise to get rid of new IRS agents. But the goal of giving money to the IRS was to boost an agency that has lost staff and has really struggled to respond to problems with tax returns that many Americans have been dealing with. So Democrats wanted to increase staffing. Of course, this bill isn't gonna go anywhere in the Senate that's controlled by Democrats.
11: And Pierre's Deirdre
12: Walsh, thank you. Thank you. Kevin McCarthy's 15 rounds of voting were the most any speaker has endured since 1859. It took 44 rounds back then And it took place as the country was edging towards civil war let's dig into what that history tells us now and what it might mean for mccarthy npr's senior editor and correspondent ron elving joins us this morning hey ron 15 ballots seems like a lot it was a lot in terms of recent congressional history no
6: it was indeed there had been only one occasion duane since the civil war Hmm. where it took more than a single round of voting to elect a speaker And that one exception had been 100 years ago. In 1923, back then, the Republican Party was dealing with deep divisions within its own ranks and also working out its response in response, a reaction to a rather disappointing election. So a time much like our own.
12: Yeah, and 100 years doesn't seem like that long ago now when we look at uh, what happened over the weekend. But while we're counting, Ron, what was the record for this kind of, I heard it described as uh, mud fighting, Uh, What was the uh, longest it ever took to get a speaker?
6: Well, they they went 44 rounds in 1859, which was the last speakership election to happen before Abraham Lincoln became president. Wow. Uh, But a few years earlier, in 1855, the House had needed 133 rounds of voting to elect a speaker. And that process went on literally for months.
12: So both of those protracted votes could be called dress rehearsals for the war that was to come?
6: Well, absolutely. And um, back then, they were building up to the Civil War that had been building for decades. Slavery was the reason it took 63 rounds to get a speaker in 1849 when Congress was fixated on the expansion of slavery in the new territories following the Mexican-American War that had just ended. But even 30 years earlier than that, Congress had been hung up for 22 rounds as um, the North and South were hashing out what became the Missouri Compromise of 1820. So, Ron, it, it seems
12: like, from what you just said, that the, after the Civil War, uh, the process of actually choosing a speaker became less contentious?
6: There were still plenty of fights and rivalries, but as a rule, they were resolved before the whole House met to vote for speaker. Yeah. They were taken care of inside the parties. And after the war, the number of parties in Congress was greatly reduced. Basically, they got down to the two we have today. And that meant that most of the time, one party or the other, had a clear majority, and that party's leader would be speaker.
12: And often these speakers were quite powerful, even back then, right, either as allies or rivals of the president?
6: Yes. In the last 150 years, they often had enormous influence. And in recent years, uh, we've seen speakers trying to restore some of that stature to the office, but with mixed success. Uh, One big reason is that contemporary members of Congress don't feel as much obligation to the party. and they don't feel as much obligation to the leadership to do what they're asked to do.
12: Yeah, Ron, so it took 15 rounds this uh, uh, time to elect uh, McCarthy. Why don't we see this kind of unanimous vote for the speaker anymore?
6: We don't see it anymore because people individually in Congress see themselves as more important than they see the party and its larger agenda. Mm. NPR's Ron Elving, thank you, buddy. Thank you, Dwayne.
12: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Chanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Buffalo Bills defeated the Patriots yesterday in a triumphant return to the field after safety Demar Hamlin's cardiac arrest. Meanwhile, Hamlin's collapse has sparked a surge of interest in how to perform CPR. It's 830.
13: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More heavy rains and mountain snows are expected today in California. The National Weather Service says what's known as an atmospheric river continues to send moisture into the state from the Pacific Ocean. A high wind warning is posted for much of the state. and the Sierra Nevada, winter storm warnings are in effect. Nick Miller with Cap Radio says California's governor is urging people to be ready.
23: Governor Gavin Newsom says Californians need to prepare for more extreme weather. We've
6: been at this how many days and uh, expect to, uh, to see the worst of it still in front of us.
23: This next atmospheric river is forecast to drop several inches of rain from the Bay Area to the foothills, plus blizzards in the mountains. Yesterday afternoon, hundreds of thousands of Californians were still without power, and officials worry there will be more flooding due to heavily saturated soils. The governor says more people have died in these winter storms than California's past two wildfire seasons. For NPR News, I'm Nick Miller in Sacramento.
13: Authorities in California blame the stormy weather for at least 12 deaths. Earlier today, President Biden approved an emergency declaration for the state. President Biden is in Mexico City for the North American Leaders Summit. On his way to Mexico, the president stopped in El Paso, Texas, to get a look at conditions along the U.S. southern border. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The family of a man shot and killed by Newton police two years ago is now suing over his death. The relatives of Michael Conlon say they want more accountability and improvements in how police respond to mental health emergencies. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports.
10: The lawsuit alleges that Newton's emergency services endanger people with mental illness. It questions the fatal police shooting of 28-year-old Michael Conlin. His father, Bob Conlon, says Michael was delusional and police reacted too quickly without waiting for trained negotiators.
1: You tell me that these individuals know what they're doing? Absolutely not. And it cost Michael his life, us unbearable pain, and that's why we're suing.
10: A statement from Newton's mayor and police chief says the shooting was tragic. It points to an inquest into Conlon's death that found the officers were justified. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Chelsea
0: is the latest school district in Massachusetts to reinstate its mask requirement in the face of rising COVID cases. Starting today, everyone is required to wear masks inside. The district originally lifted the mask requirement in April of last year. The district says it'll make changes depending on case numbers in the area. New England power companies face $39 million in penalties for issues surrounding that windstorm we got just before Christmas. The region's power grid operator, ISO New England, says those companies violated an agreement by not meeting the peak demand. There were hundreds of thousands of customers left without power during the single-digit temperatures on Christmas Eve. There's been no comment by the power companies. It's 833.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at ROADscholar.org learning.
0: The Patriots' season ended yesterday with a 35-23 loss to the Bills in Buffalo. The Pats finished the season with an 8-9 and nine record and missed the playoffs. The playoffs begin next week. David Pasternak had a hat trick for the Bruins last night. They beat the Ducks 7-1 to in Anaheim. The bees are now off until Thursday. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics host the Chicago Bulls. We have some overcast skies this morning. That those They should clear up pretty soon. Temperatures will rise to the mid-40s. Tonight they fall to a low around 30. Then tomorrow, mostly clear skies with high temperatures right around 40. Right now it's 35 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from your part-time
18: controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington. The Buffalo Bills and their fans, known as the Bills Mafia, have a lot to celebrate this morning. Their team scored a decisive win at home over the New England Patriots, and safety DeMar Hamlin continues to recover after collapsing during last Monday's game against Cincinnati. David Summerstein with North Country Public Radio reports.
30: Hammer's lot is the epicenter of Bills Mafia tailgating. Legendary among NFL fans for breaking folding tables, doing shots from bowling balls. But on Sunday, Tina Bramhall was handing out hundreds of red hearts with number three, DeMar Hamlin's number on them, for fans to show their love.
16: I think it's gonna be emotional in there before the game. I'm nervous uh, during the game for the guys. You know, I can't even imagine.
30: The Bills watched their teammate collapse due to a cardiac arrest during a Monday game in Cincinnati. The team's medical staff did CPR and literally saved Hamlin's life right there on the field. It's a
27: roller coaster going from that low of a low and worrying that hard to going to the very top and seeing that like he's neurologically firing on every accident. I mean, the man woke up and asked who won the game.
30: Kristen Kimmick is a mega fan and president of Bill's Mafia Babes. She says Hamlin's ongoing recovery did something special and not only for Buffalo.
27: DeMar Hamlin's like not just a miracle survivor. He did the impossible. Like he brought the entire nation together at least just for a few days. And it's been like such a long time since we've seen that.
30: The game started with a tribute to Hamlin, the medical staff, and then on the very first play.
23: Today we celebrate DeMar's recovery. Our love for DeMar and our gratitude. Please rise
30: and show us. A 96-yard kick return for a touchdown. Hamlin was watching from his hospital bed and live tweeting with lots of exclamation points. Oh, and then kick returner Naheem Hines did it again in the second half. After the game, the Bills talked about how, despite the victory, the trauma was still raw. Fellow defensive player Tredavious White said he just wanted Hamlin back.
21: I can't wait to hear his voice and able to touch him and just hug the out of him and hear that again. So it's been it's been a hard week.
30: Buffalo needed this. The cities also suffered through the racist mass shooting at a top supermarket and a deadly blizzard. As Bill's mafia filed out, Lean On Me played on the loudspeakers. Paula Pericozzi paused, looked around and smiled.
2: shows the resiliency of Buffalo. We can come back from anything and, and we can make things right.
30: And let's not forget four straight Super Bowl losses in the 90s. As the playoffs get underway, the Bills and their fans hope Hamlin's inspiration can help them conquer that one, too. For NPR News, I'm David Summerstein in Buffalo.
12: DeMar Hamlin's remarkable recovery may not have been possible if things had gone differently in the moments after he collapsed following his medical rescue. The American Heart Association says it's seen a huge surge in page views on how to deliver hands-only CPR and doctors say people who happen to be nearby can be tremendous help to someone who has collapsed and stopped breathing. In Paris, Allison Aubrey reports.
17: As DeMar Hamlin's teammates huddled around him after he collapsed, it was impossible to see what was happening, but it's now clear that medical staff were incredibly quick to respond. Dr. William Knight of the University of Cincinnati says emergency physicians were at his side in less than a minute
22: and that allowed for a very immediate uh, resuscitation on the field. He was promptly resuscitated. It did require CPR and defibrillation.
17: Having doctors and equipment on site helped immensely. But this is highly unusual. For most of the more than 350,000 people who go into cardiac arrest each year in the U.S., it's typically only a family member, co-worker, or maybe even a stranger nearby to witness. So could they do what DeMar Hamlin's doctors did to save a life? Dr. Rod Passman of Northwestern University says bystanders can absolutely make a difference.
14: This is a wake-up call and shows you how critical it is that people learn CPR. Intervention, even by a bystander, could save a life.
17: The American Heart Association estimates that CPR, especially if delivered immediately after cardiac arrest, can double or triple a person's chance of survival. But because bystanders can be intimidated and not know how to deliver mouth-to-mouth rescue breaths, the simpler approach is hands-only CPR. The basic guidance from the Heart Association is this. If you witness someone collapse suddenly and they're not breathing, first call 911. Then use your hands to start pushing hard and fast in the center of the person's chest. One trick is to push to the beat of the disco song, Stand Alive. Dr. Passman says CPR is basically a temporary way to keep blood flowing.
14: It is a way of supporting the organs when your heart pump is no longer working and you're no longer breathing to take in oxygen.
17: But in the case of cardiac arrest, CPR is not the only thing needed to save a life. CPR is basically a way to buy time until the heart can be defibrillated. Cardiac arrest is often caused by an electrical problem in the heart. Basically, an irregular heartbeat or arrhythmia develops when faulty electrical signals that tell the heart muscle to pump cause some chambers to fibrillate or quiver. This prevents the heart from pumping blood properly. So the heart needs an electric shock, delivered by a device called a defibrillator.
14: Defibrillation basically stops the life-threatening abnormal rhythm and allows the normal rhythm to resume.
17: This may sound complicated, but using an automated external defibrillator called an AED is pretty simple. And if you look around, you can spot them in all sorts of places, from airports to shopping malls and in many offices. I recently participated in a CPR course where the instructor demoed an AED, and I was kind of surprised by how easy they are to use. During the class, we opened the device, which is kept in a box marked in red lettering, emergency defibrillator. And when it's turned on, an electronic voice started to talk to us, giving simple instructions to check for breathing and a pulse, and how to place two pads on the person's bare chest.
14: But you put down these patches on the heart that receives the electrical activity. Uh, it automatically analyzes it. And if it decides that this is a life-threatening rhythm, it will charge and deliver a shock through those same patches.
17: If it's not a life-threatening rhythm, the device will not deliver a shock to the person's heart. AEDs are designed so that people can use them without any special training, but the key is to know where they are. The American Heart Association estimates only 50% of people can locate an AED at work. Alison Aubrey, NPR News.
12: NPR News.
0: Coming up on Morning Edition, WBUR senior health reporter Priyanka dayal McClaskey has the latest on how hospitals are coping with increasing COVID cases in the state. In your forecast, skies should clear throughout the day today and we'll have temperatures in the mid-40s. Tonight, low 30s. Skies stay mostly clear tomorrow. It'll be in the upper 30s and low 40s. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston at 843.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering
0: and science, MathWorks.com. Now in business news, stock in Cambridge-based Biogen is up about 1% in pre-market trading today. That follows news the FDA granted approval to a new Alzheimer's drug from the company and its Japanese partner. The drug called Lakembi, is shown to slow cognitive decline in some milder early stages of the disease. The city of Medford is considering proposals to turn parking lots near the Wellington T Station into mixed-use housing, hotels, and more public parking. The Boston Herald reports eight development development firms submitted proposals following a request for information from the city. The price for a gallon of gas in Massachusetts is falling closer to the national average. AAA says the average price for a gallon of regular grade in the state is now $3.32. That's down 5 cents from last week and just 4 cents higher than the national average. It's 8.44. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic
10: Institution, understanding that now more than ever, we need the ocean and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu slash team.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoi. COVID numbers are climbing again after the holidays. Cases are up, and so are hospitalizations. But this COVID winter looks different from the last one. WBR health reporter Priyanka Dale mccluskey is here to explain why. Hi, Priyanka. Hi, Rupa. Thanks for having me. So it sounds like the holidays and the gatherings are what's driving the increase in COVID right now, right?
24: Right. So many of us traveled or spent time with friends and family during the holidays, and we know that contributes to the spread of respiratory viruses. So as we've seen over the last couple of winters, COVID numbers are increasing. Wastewater data shows a steep spike, and we may not be seeing the peak in cases yet because it takes time for people to develop symptoms and test positive. There's another factor to consider right now. And we're seeing the rapid rise of a contagious new COVID variant called XBB 1.5. This accounts for three quarters of cases in New England, according to the CDC. And over the last two winters, COVID overwhelmed the healthcare system. Is that what it looks like now again? Well, the number of COVID patients in hospitals is rising. It's doubled over the last month. But Remember, last year at this time, we saw an incredibly fast spike because of the Omicron variant. We are not seeing a surge anywhere near that level now. State data tells us the rate of positive tests is lower than the peak of last January, and there are about 1,300 COVID patients in hospitals right now. But here's some important perspective. That's about half of what hospitals were seeing at this time last year.
0: Mm, Interesting. Are doctors saying they're noticing
24: any trends in the COVID patients they're treating this year? Well, one thing is a smaller number of patients in the ICU. Here's Dr. Shira Derone, epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center.
25: It is reassuring that even among patients with COVID, they're less sick than patients were overall in the earlier days of the pandemic.
24: And Darone says most COVID patients in hospitals are not being treated for COVID. They're in the hospital for some other reason and happen to test positive.
25: COVID has really become just one of the many respiratory viruses that are circulating
24: and that circulate at higher rates in the winter time. So basically, Rupa, COVID has become a more routine problem in hospitals and a little bit more predictable than it was before.
0: Well, that sounds like a good thing. Does that mean hospitals aren't feeling
24: as stressed as they were earlier in the pandemic? Well, actually, the healthcare system is under a lot of stress right now. The difference is COVID is no longer the main stressor. Dr. Paul Biddinger runs emergency preparedness for the Mass General Brigham hospital system. Here's how he describes it.
31: The healthcare system across the state, across the country, remains under extraordinary strain. Our emergency departments are, are more full than they have been. Our hospitals are more full. The demand for care remains higher than, than it has been. And any increase in the demand for care, any increase in the demand for hospital beds, is, is really, really hard to accommodate.
24: This is because patients are coming to ER sicker after deferring care. Hundreds of patients are waiting for mental health treatment, and hundreds of others are stuck in hospitals because there's no rehab or skilled nursing bed for them to continue their care. On top of all this, there are staffing shortages across healthcare right now, so a lot of challenges for the system. I see. So how are hospitals managing all of this? They say they're doing their best to juggle all the patients who need care. Sometimes they postpone surgeries to make room for urgent care, and they're using alternative spaces to treat patients. I'll give you an example. At UMass Memorial Medical Center, some of the rooms typically used during the day are now used for patients staying overnight. Here's Justin Precourt, the hospital's chief nursing officer.
22: This has become the new reality. It's how do we really, you know, provide the service that we need to provide to the community within the confines that we have. And these are ways that we can do that.
24: Hospitals during the pandemic have gotten a lot better at expanding capacity when patient numbers rise. Is there anything
0: else that's different about what's happening around COVID right now that we haven't already talked about?
24: Well, for the first time, we have COVID along with flu and RSV, which has hit kids especially hard. Flu and RSV appear to be past their peaks, but all these viruses spreading at the same time has made for a tough winter so far.
0: That's WBOR health reporter Priyanka Dale mccluskey
24: Thank you. Good to talk to you, Rupa. Thank you.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up, how the impasse over immigration reform may be impacting innovation in the U.S. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Scott Tong is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Scott.
20: Rupa, good morning. Happy Monday to you. To you, too. So who are the people who overran the Capitol on January 6th? Well, a new documentary suggests the answer is a little more nuanced than we might think. Not necessarily... All people full of hate, but many who were, as the film suggests, confused and living in a manipulative right-wing media echo chamber, and we'll talk to the director. This morning in New York City, thousands of nurses went on strike at two big hospitals. That forced hospitals to move patients and send ambulances elsewhere. The nurses' union says the hospital has not hired enough nurses, among other issues, so we'll get an update there. And from the News You Can Use department, how to invest in a down market and how to commute by bike safely. Rather topical for those of us who have crashed on the road and are about to come back say, in. going to say,
0: yeah, you can speak first person. Uh, thank you, Scott. Yeah, Rupa, thanks. That's here and now today at noon. It's 8.51. Aubrey Gordon's new book
2: debunks myths about weight and body size, like the idea that being fat is a choice. Researchers have been clear for years that our body size isn't solely or even primarily the result of our own choices. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Her book, You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at four on WBUR.
0: Overcast skies will clear throughout the day. Temperatures will rise to the mid-40s. Right now it's 35 degrees in Boston at 851.
26: We are watching Brazil and in a few minutes how U.S.
7: farmers can now fix their own tractors. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. As you've been hearing, authorities in Brazil
26: have taken control of key government buildings stormed by rioters who refuse to accept that their man, former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, lost the recent presidential election. As many as 400 people were arrested. Brazil has struggled with deep political division while also contending with high inflation and high interest rates.
14: Marketplace's Nova Safo has an economic snapshot. To battle inflation, Brazil's central bank has raised interest rates in the country to near 14%. It's worked. Inflation is down by half, but it's still at 6.5%. That combination led incoming President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva to promise state support for struggling Brazilians. But it is Jair Bolsonaro whom many low-income agricultural communities see as an ally. He relaxed policies intended to preserve the Amazon rainforest, allowing deforestation at a fast pace for high-income cattle farming. Online misinformation has also played a role in fueling the ransacking. Over the weekend, Brazil's Supreme Court ordered social media companies to remove anti-democratic posts. Facebook parent Meta today said it was complying. I'm Novasafa for Marketplace. Shares of
26: Chinese tech giant Alibaba jumped 8% today. This word the company's famous founder, Jack Ma, will give up control over the financial affiliate Ant Group amid his fall from grace. Here's our China correspondent, Jennifer Pack.
24: Ant Group runs the popular payment app Alipay. It was created by e-commerce giant Alibaba back in 2004. Back then, consumers didn't trust online shopping. So customers transfer money to Alipay, and funds are held there until the goods are received. Then Alipay releases the money to vendors. Today, Alipay is used in place of cash. But you can also buy insurance, take out small loans, and invest. In 2020, Ant Group was set to list in Hong Kong and Shanghai, but those plans dropped because founder Jack Ma had reportedly criticized Chinese regulators. Since then, Ant Group has been forced to restructure. Now that Jack Ma is giving up control over the firm, investors hope it signals an end to China's regulatory crackdown on the tech sector. In Shanghai, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace.
26: S&P futures are up six-tenths of a percent in Europe. Amsterdam is up more than one percent now on the bet that that region will beat inflation without recession.
7: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose
26: is people. Now to research on the connection between immigration and innovation, something we touched on in our series last month, marking the 75th anniversary of the semiconductor revolution. The role of highly skilled people coming to the U.S. from other countries has been underappreciated, according to Marketplace's senior economics contributor Chris Farrell. Good morning. Good morning, David. Immigration, it's a hot-button political issue perennially, but the economic gains from attracting skilled
31: immigrants to the U.S. is quite well documented. It is, but I still find the numbers striking. I mean, let me just list a few telling figures. Foreign-born newcomers have been awarded 38% of Nobel Prizes won by Americans in chemistry, medicine, and physics between 2000 and 2000 in 2021. Immigrants account for almost one fourth of the STEM workforce, and STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. High-tech hotspots like Silicon Valley and Boston's Route 128 rely on immigrant scientists, engineers, and entrepreneurs.
26: Yet those numbers, and in my own reporting I've seen many other data sets with a similar message, you think they still don't tend to capture the total contribution that immigrants make to innovation in the U.S.?
31: Not even close. At least, that's my reaction to a recent study by five economists, the contribution of high-skilled immigrants to innovation in the United States. So these economists tap into and stitch together a number of data sources to get a more comprehensive, a more nuanced understanding of the contributions of skilled immigrants to innovation. So I'll give you one example. They find that 16% of U.S.-based inventors between 1990 and 2016 were immigrants who came to the U.S. when they were 20 years or older. Yet these immigrant inventors have produced roughly 23 percent of all innovations, and that's measured by number of patents, patent citations, and the economic value of these patents. But you do have U.S. born people with skills worrying that new
26: immigrants can bring down compensation in the field.
31: And I think that's been a genuine concern. but. What I took away from this study, David, is that it's not a zero-sum game. So if you're having skilled immigrants coming in here and bringing in their ideas and they're working with innovators who are native-born, everyone seems to benefit, particularly the U.S. economy. And compensation is important, but so is innovation. That's where we get our higher incomes from going forward.
26: What accounts for the greater productivity among immigrant innovators, do you think?
31: So, several factors may be at work. I mean, for one thing, it looks like immigrants choose to live in innovation hubs and more seem to focus on working at technology's frontier. But what really struck me was their international ties contribute to the importation, the diffusion of ideas across borders, as well as cross-border collaborations. So, if you take into account these these idea bridges, these innovation bridges built between the U.S. and the home countries of immigrants, as well as other measures, the economists calculate that skilled immigrants are responsible for more than one-third of aggregate innovation in the U.S., and that's a stunning number. Marketplace's senior economics
26: contributor Chris Farrell, speaking in St. Paul, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, David. American innovation is also underpinned by a tradition of people who grew up fixing farm equipment, people who brought their hands-on skills into their later engineering. Now over the weekend, the farm equipment maker John Deere signed a Memorandum of Understanding giving farmers the right to fix the equipment they own or to use non-John Deere repair facilities. The American Farm Bureau negotiated the deal that's taken years. Deere had previously argued this would be a safety or air pollution issue. Among other things, farmers will be able to get diagnostic repair codes, manuals, and help ordering parts from John Deere. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. We're from APM, American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy skies will gradually clear throughout the day today. Temperatures will rise to the mid-40s. Tonight it falls to the low 30s and skies stay clear. Mostly sunny and around 40 tomorrow. The same on Wednesday, mostly sunny and around 40. A chance of rain on Thursday. It's 36 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com.
19: After a series of botched executions, the state of Alabama is moving toward a fix. It could soon begin executing death row inmates using nitrogen hypoxia, or death by lethal gas. And it's not alone. Oklahoma, Mississippi, Missouri, California, Wyoming, and Arizona all have legalized execution by gas. We'll take a look at why. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.